Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need when you need it with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, everybody. Before we get to today's episode, we have some news that we're pretty excited to share with you. That's right. In Brave New Work's 128-episode history, the show has never had a sponsor because... We haven't needed a sponsor. Yeah, y'all, if you've been with us for a while, you know our episodes have not been brought to you by anybody but us and the Ready. But recently, we got the chance to partner with an organization that we love and literally rely on all day long. (laughs) So starting today, we are stoked to let you know that Slack is Brave New Work's first official sponsor. Yay! Y'all know we're all about the future of work, and it's pretty hard for us to imagine work without Slack. I mean, our very first episode was with Mike Brevort at Slack, so we go back. But don't expect us to just drop in some ad spots and call it a day. We're collaborating with Slack to create fresh content that will help you adopt new ways of working and create a digital HQ that enables your teams, customers, and partners to thrive in a world that works from anywhere. We're talking about live co-working sessions, deep dives into Slack's original research, new interviews, and even a few surprises. And surprise number one is coming up next. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Brian Elliott and Sheila Subramanian from Slack's Future Forum about their brand new book, How the Future Works, leading flexible teams to do the best work of their lives. Now that does sound like our cup of tea. Doesn't it though? Let's go do it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my hydrated co-host, Rodney Edwards. (laughs) Hey, everybody. We are also joined today by Sheila Subramanian and Brian Elliott. Sheila is a co-founder and the vice president of Slack's Future Forum, and Brian is its executive leader and also a senior VP at Slack, one of our favorite apps. Together with Helen Cup, they've co-authored this new book, How the Future Works, Leading Flexible Teams to Do the Best Work of Their Lives. I love that. Sheila and Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Thanks. Much appreciated. On today's episode, we're going to talk about building a digital first and flexible future of work which is an uphill battle to be sure. But before we build that future, let's build a little check-in round. Let's do it. We always do it and we'll do it today with our (laughs) illustrious guests. And our check-in question for today sparked because there are tornadoes in Durham right now and it's making me question my life choices. Uh, Where is the most beautiful place you have ever been? And we will go Brian, then Aaron, then Sheila, then moi. Wow. Hard check-in question, but I love cities. And I know this is going to sound odd. It's not the most beautiful thing from a nature perspective, but I still love Paris. Mm. I love walking around Paris. I love the energy. I love the vibe. And I, you know, for two years there, I really missed travel. So I guess part of it's, you know, pandemic related, but large cities, fantastic places with history. Love it. Oh, that's awesome. Nice. Uh, For me, 
I'm going to say two-way tie between being in the Aspen Groves up in the Rocky Mountains when the colors change at the mm-hmm. turn of the fall season and and being in New Zealand, frankly, anywhere, like basically anywhere in New Zealand. Oh, wow. You know, Middle Earth. Yes, I, I absolutely love New Zealand as well. I would have to say the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. Uh, I climbed Kilimanjaro for my honeymoon years ago. And you basically hike all night to watch the sunrise at the, the summit of the mountain. And the hike all night, it's, it's not very fun. But once you reach the top and you're able to watch the sunrise, you feel like you're in the clouds. It's, it's the most beautiful experience I've ever had. Oh, that's so awesome. Also, Aaron, I feel like you find a way to work New Zealand in a lot. I think we need Why to not? find a way to get you to New Zealand. Yeah, when does our office in New Soon. Zealand open? Seriously. For me, God, I feel very fortunate to have been so many beautiful places in my life. Um, for sentimental reasons, I will say where I got married. So my husband mm. and I, I hesitate to call it elopement because it was really just that no one was invited, not that they weren't aware we were getting married. But we got married on Rarotonga in the Cook Islands as part of a 12-month round the world journey. And we stayed there for a month. We had a little bet to see when I would get tired of the beach. And as it turned out, I cried on the way to the airport. So longer than a month <laughs> Never um, is That's the answer great. to that question. Um, so yeah, Rarotonga. That's amazing. Ronnie, do you want to kick it? Sure. So today's topic is how the future can and should work. And I would love to start by asking you both, what was the catalyst behind Future Forum? And what's the work y'all are getting up to there? So personally for me, it was, you know, having led and managed teams for 30 years now myself, mostly in technology companies, you know, there's so much that you learn personally about School of Hard Knocks on how to manage teams, how to lead them. But the start of the pandemic was really this huge catalyst in terms of opportunity to learn and experiment in a lot of different ways, a lot of them really hard. And so I went back and along with Sheila and Helen, our co-authors, uh, talked to Stuart Butterfield, who was the CEO of Slack and a few other folks about this idea that had been basically brewing in the back of the brains of a few of us at Slack, including Stuart, for years, which is we should have our own think tank. Um, we have our own perspective on future of work, but we also have a fantastic research team and organization. And so at the start of the pandemic, we were having all these really interesting conversations, both internally, but also with other executives at other companies about all these challenging policy questions that people really had sort of ignored for years around not only remote work policy, but how do you really make flexibility work and how are we handling stress and belonging? And the reason why we started a future forum was there never was a better moment to take that sort of plasticity that everybody was having and apply some research to it, get some people together to talk about best practices and start really trying to build a body of knowledge that would help advance a much more flexible, much more inclusive way of working. Yeah, I'm happy to to chime in there as well. Prior to the pandemic, I I can speak from my own experience as as a woman of color, as a working mother of, of two young kids, work was fundamentally broken. And I know that I'm not alone in that sentiment. And the pandemic exposed a lot of the inequities, the, the areas of work that just weren't working for many types of employees. And we saw Future Forum as an opportunity to have more of a dialogue of how to make work better for all types of employees rather than the select few. And over the last couple of years, it's been really rewarding to see the levels of conversation we've been able to have around inclusion, equity, and, and how to foster connection beyond the ways in which we used to rely 
on, on fostering that. And that was being in the office five days a week from nine to five. So I guess from that bedrock came this idea for, for the book, right? This awesome new book, How the Future Works. Um, before we jump in and get into that, can you explain the book in a sentence or two? What's the, what's the pitch that the airport bookshelf gives? <laughs> yes. So two sentences. All right. Um, so people talk about flexibility. Oftentimes the conversation is about where people work, the number of days you're in the office, but more important is when people work. People want choice. And this book gives you a step-by-step guide on how to build a flexible, inclusive, and connected workplace for your employees. And if I could build on top of that combination of the research that we've done for the past two years, every quarter, uh, Future Forum Pulse is a a survey instrument uh, for over 10,000 knowledge workers around the globe, helping us understand habits and practices and what's working. But importantly, we paired that up with some really great storytelling, getting some people to go deep with us on what was working for them personally and what didn't work for them so that we could actually build that into some really great case studies and how-to tips for people that are struggling with how do you make hybrid work work. That's certainly timely. Seriously. I mean, I feel like, you know, there's so many articles and books being written on related topics, right? Like flexible work and hybrid work and when to work and returning to work. And (laughs) is it the death of offices? You know, I guess my question is like, you all have a lot of perspectives on the future of work. Why this particular book? Like, why was it important to you that this was part of the conversation? For me personally, it was, we'd had so many conversations with executives. One of the things that we do is gather small groups of folks, a dozen at a time in sort of these Chatham House Rules conversations about the problems and challenges that they're facing. Someone's always got a great example of something that's innovative that other people are learning from. And a lot of other people are honestly just struggling with, you know, how to change their fellow executives' minds or how to make it work. And we'd had so many of those conversations that were really rich that it made a lot of sense to us to think about how we're going to pull this together into something that is, you know, sort of more comprehensive, a how-to guide that people can use and leverage that they can pass around within their own organization to say, hey, look, I know we're wrestling, for example, with how to manage, you know, flexibility around schedules, as Sheila was saying. Here's some really great examples, not only around like managing your meetings problem, but issues like core collaboration hours. How do you actually put those in place? And we really wanted to bring together sort of that best of from all of those different conversations in a way that people could use it on a week-to-week, day-to-day basis. And my assumption is that there's a lot of curiosity in the market about how Slack does a lot of this stuff because it is one of the primary tools in the stack that most companies are using when they're working remotely and asynchronously and, and in a hybrid way. And the assumption I, I think a lot of people hold is Slack must have all this figured out. So how, how did that set of patterns and norms inside Slack interface with the research that you were doing and kind of the broader perspective that the forum was taking when you were constructing the book and the how-tos of it all? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take that one first, but Sheila should chime in on this one too. <laughs> you know, I, I happened to also run Slack's Future of Work Task Force internally, this kind of cross-functional, yeah. cross-discipline, cross-group uh, effort. Slack itself struggled with this stuff too. We were less than 3% of our employees were remote prior to the pandemic. Wow. Yeah. Everybody assumes that Slack was this very, you know, remote first uh, organization. One of the stories we share in the book is Mike Brevoort, who was an engineering director out of Denver who worked with me on the platform. Friend of the show. 
Yeah, Mike's Mike has been around. Your, you got, he was in your first episode. You was right. in a very early app. I learned a lot. Yeah, about Mike, Mike, Mike. Mike Mike goes way back with y'all. Mike is actually the person internally at Slack that coined the phrase "Slack is our headquarters," mm. um, and it wasn't a marketing slogan. Mike made twenty three trips to San Francisco in twenty nineteen, and he didn't come to San Francisco just to be with his team. He came to be in the room where it happens. You know, if mm. if there was a senior executive review of a product initiative that he cared about. He just had a hard time feeling like, you know, he was engaged enough dialing in. And that kind of thing, when you, you know, Mike was never going to move out of Denver. He's got a family there. It's fantastic. But we've seen so many people where that was the the sort of risk around losing them because the opportunities weren't there if they didn't move. And Slack itself took that to another level and said, okay, this is really working for us. How do we think about keeping this level playing field for people that are in New York, Vancouver, Pune, Dublin with the San Francisco crowd? And it was a major set of conversations and shifts, even with our own executive team to figure out what's it mean, not just in terms of things like days a week, people come into the office, but more importantly, how are we going to create a level playing field? So that not only people who are remote because they happen to live in a different city, but people who need flexibility because they're caregivers can do that and not feel like they're risking their careers in doing so. And it's it's been a really challenging and often rich set of conversations. I think one thing that we've done particularly well at Slack is we've had a a tendency to experiment. We're okay with having a growth mindset, experimenting, seeing what works, what doesn't work. And we've seen that in different forms, whether it's, we've, we've talked about like focus Fridays as an organization, using Fridays as an opportunity to do focused work and not have the regular meetings or pings throughout the day. Um, another thing that we've experimented with in terms of time flexibility is core team work hours, where teams have an opportunity to say, this is the time block where we're going to come together to discuss, debate decide specific topics. And outside of that, we're going to embrace the nonlinear workday. You are free to pick up your kids, drive your mom to the doctor's appointment, go for a run, whatever you need to do to be, be whole. And, and another idea that we've, we've tested along the way is how do we make meetings more inclusive when some people are in the office and others are not? So we've been experimenting with something called one dials in, all dial in, mm. where everybody dials in to Yes. Computer, and they have their face um, on the screen. So it doesn't feel like you're out of the loop or you're out of the conversation if you're not in the room where it happens. Obviously, we're big fans of experimentation on the show. And I love that last experiment. We've been using a video tool called Around, which has smart audio AI. So you can have like five people in the room and five people in the park. And you don't have to have the, be riding the mute button the whole time. So I think that is such a breakthrough. Yeah. So obviously everyone on this podcast right now is a big fan of flexible work. And also we know there are arguments against flex work. There's definitely a bit of a backlash to remote work that is making the rounds in the press right now. And some executives that are coming out very strongly against uh, remote culture. Um, The research that you all put forward shows that 68% of executives want to work in an office all or most of the time, but that that is three times the number of non-executives who say the same thing. (laughs) So can you all uh, talk a little bit about that uh, carousel that we're on and, and, and just the resistance that you're seeing in general? Yes. So I've been in countless meetings or conversations with with executives where the topic of, well, people aren't responding to my messages or my emails quickly enough. So they need to come back into the office. 
Or, you know, I don't know what people are doing all day. So they need to come back into the office. Or even better is I went into the office five days a week, 12 hours a day. So I did that throughout my career. So everybody else needs to follow. And what we're seeing a lot of in terms of this decision making around what do return to the office plans look like is a sense of confirmation bias. Based on our research, two thirds of executives are actually not including their broader employee base when they're formulating their return to office policies. And so they're operating as, as Helena Goshling, the, the CHRO of RBC coins it, they're operating as a focus group of one. So they're not actually getting the feedback of their team members across locations, across levels, across functions to hear what's working. In addition, what we're seeing a lot of, and th- there's a lot of backlash here, are top-down mandates. Work is one size fits all for the entire company. And that's not working. What we're seeing is that leaders who actually empower their managers to develop team level agreements and figure out what works best for their teams have happier employees. And what this all comes back to is talent. So talent is top of mind for CEOs. It's been top of mind for many years now. But as we talk about the great resignation or the way I like to think about it is the great rethink, what we're seeing from our research is that 71% of employees who are not happy with their level of flexibility within the organization are open to looking for a new job in the next year. So leaders really need to listen to their employees, get a sense of what's working, empower their managers to figure out what works best for those teams, or else they risk losing these employees to other organizations who are leading more with trust rather than this is how it's always been. So I would love to talk about the F word now, uh, flexibility. You, you write that our research shows that flexibility is the most important driver of job satisfaction behind compensation, which is kind of wild. What do you really mean by flexibility in the most flexible sense of the word? And why is designing for it critical? What does that look like? It's such a complex and, and big challenge for people to wrap their heads around everything here. So much of flexibility in the press and what gets talked about is how many days a week someone's going to be allowed to work from home, which is sort of the tip of the iceberg. The you know flexibility in terms of location is obviously something that almost everybody wants. Most people, regardless of, of level, want to have something that's somewhere in the middle. They want to come together with their teams occasionally when there's purpose behind it, but they want to have a lot more time to you know work at home when it makes sense for them uh, to be productive uh, and basically to also live where they want to live. The part that gets skipped over though a lot is schedule flexibility, which is even more important for people. Schedule flexibility is you know something that's sort of run rampant on us. What, what it basically means is instead of having nine to five be assumed to be a place where you could jam pack, you know, meetings or worse yet, just turn your calendar into a game of Jenga that, you know, you're trying to find a chunk of time to actually get your heads down work done. (laughs) Um, What we all know happens is because we make that set of assumptions, we create that problem and then people are stuck with, well, I guess I'll get my, my real work done, you know, after the kids are in bed at night or early in the morning. And the challenge is, if you're doing both of those things simultaneously, even if you're good early in the morning or later at night, you're not going to be great because you're just overworked and it's it's not uh, productive. So what we get into a lot in the book is how do you find ways to balance this out in, on two dimensions? One is what works in terms of flexibility across teams? There's this balance point. The top-down mandate, as Sheila noted, doesn't work. It doesn't fit the habits and practices of a lot of teams. You all, I know, are big fans of team norms. One of the ones that's important for teams to figure out is 
What are the habits and rhythms of our team? How often do we come together and for what purpose? And for a sales team, that might mean that, uh, you know, we've got a regional sales team. And if you're going to come into the office, use Wednesday or, or Wednesday and Thursday to do it, because that way we're at least mm-hmm. all showing up on the same days. For a lot of engineering teams, it's more like what's the week of the month or the week of the quarter that we're going to come together and we're going to spend a lot of time not just doing planning and discovery, but socialization and meals together and the rest of the sort of building of bonds. The schedule side becomes even more important, though, because it's where you get real unlocks in terms of people's life as well as productivity. You know, we do core team hours ourselves, 9 a.m. until 1 p.m. West Coast, because that way folks that are on the East Coast and other areas know that we're not going to schedule something outside those hours without asking them first. It's mm. really about that sort of expectation setting. And that way, if you've got childcare issues, that way, if you've got the need to put your head down and get some work done, you know, you're going to have some more protected time in doing that. But the other thing that also becomes really key in this is, you know, we're, we live in a world where people need to learn what tool to use for what purpose, but also how to control all of this. And so as leaders and as managers, we also need to help people set boundaries around their schedule. So one of the conversations we have as a group is what kind of issues are going to get escalated off hours? And if it gets escalated, what are we going to use to do it? Um, That happens to be text messaging. It's not even Slack, not even email. Like if there's an emergency and it's late in the evening, which by the way, shouldn't happen for us. I'm just going to text Sheila and say, hey, I need you to, uh, to watch this. I've Also personally learned some lessons here over the course of this. Scheduled send, if you're a leader, is your friend. All of us, myself included, have thought for years, look, I people know and I tell them, don't worry about this. You know, I just happen to be working at night. Don't pay attention to it till the morning. That doesn't work. People's psychology doesn't work that way. If they see the notification go off and they see that it's a message from me, they're gonna start thinking about it. And even if they know they can't, they don't have to respond you've just blown somebody's brain cycles for a while. And so finding ways to build boundaries around it becomes really important. And that sense of flexibility on time as well as place means we have to come together as a team and really solve for our own team. Yeah. The scheduled send thing. I feel very guilty. <laughs> I feel very dragged, Brian. Uh, no, but because I, I mean, I think I'm, I'm so guilty of the thing that you're describing, which is like, everyone knows that they don't need to actually say anything to me right now. It's just that I wanted to go to yoga at four and now it's nine and I'm like picking things back up, but then people always do respond. So I'm going (laughs) to do that. I'm going to take, I'm going to take a personal action to be better about that. But when, when you think about flexibility in a working strategy, how does it help? Like, like even if we were doing this fully by choice and we hadn't just lived through a global pandemic, we all know it's still the right thing to do. So what are the benefits that your research is showing in terms of having more flexibility around work? What we're seeing is that people are happier at work. They have better employee experience scores when they have flexibility. And we can talk about the mechanics of, of flexibility itself, but what it comes down to is trust. People want to be trusted. They want to uh, feel like their leaders realize that they are doing best for their jobs as well as best for themselves. And what I mean by that is that people want choice in how they live their lives. Earlier, I used the phrase, the great rethink. And I think the last few years have really shifted the way that people view work. Prior to the pandemic, it was, how am I going to fit my life into my work? And now what we're seeing from our research, from what from our conversations, is that people are asking the question, how is work going to fit into my life? 
And ultimately, what we've seen over the last two years is that individuals can get their work done, regardless of where they work, regardless of when they work. And so now is an opportunity for leaders to think about productivity measures and move them beyond this person's a hard worker because they're in the office 12 hours a day to this person is producing impact. They are right, producing right. results for the organization. So they need to be promoted accordingly. And, and that conversation is, is going to be a continuous one that we will be having. The reorientation to impact is so important and such a hard shift for, for folks to make, right? I think the, the only argument that I've heard this year that has kind of stuck to my ribs a little bit has been this, and I'm curious how this has played out in the research that you all have seen and also where you come down on it individually. Um, it's one thing to talk about flexible work and remote work and hybrid work and async work when you have a network and you have a career and you have, a, you know, a partner or a family or a set of friends and like you're kind of established in, in this work ecosystem. It's quite another thing to be coming right out of school and miss out on that experience of being in and around a lot of the action and building your network and building your mastery in a setting that is very high bandwidth. How has that played out when you actually go out and, and, and talk to folks that are, you know, 22 to 30 years old and that are in that stage of life? Is what I'm hearing there actually true or is there something else going on? I think there's ways to build with intention around a lot of that and find the right balance point in, in our research. What we see when you look at like the age demographics is the the youngest generation, sort of you know, eighteen to twenty five year olds, are the least likely to want any of the extremes. They're the least likely to want to be in the in the office five days a week. They're the least likely to want to be fully remote. <laughs> they want a hybrid setup, right? It's actually fifty plus that's most likely to want both of the extremes. And even then, what they want for the most part is they want to come together episodically. Mm. So. One of the things we've, we've talked with a lot of companies, there's a bunch of this profile in the book in terms of like IBM and Genentech and Royal Bank of Canada, all of whom have had to do a lot of work in redesigning their onboarding and mentorship programs over the course of the pandemic to bring a lot more attention to things that were just sort of random chance in an office before. And that's what a lot of this conventional wisdom comes down to. It comes down to because you sat somebody down in an open floor plan area near people who are more experienced, they would find somebody to ask a question, to get mentored and get help. And what happened behind that is to be direct. If you looked like me, a white guy, and it was a room full of white guys, you probably found somebody and had an easier time doing that. That didn't happen with everybody. And so what people have had to do in the past two years is think about what's that onboarding process look like? How do I not only give somebody a manager, but how do I give them a mentor? Somebody else that's not in their team that is more experienced, that's in their function that they can go to. How am I thinking about the composition of the team that I'm landing them in? And then how am I doing both? How am I bringing those people together episodically to build bonds, to get to know one another? And how am I using technology so they can shadow a meeting, right? How am I using products? Slack's got a product called Huddles that I happen to love. It's a voice-only channel. And one of the greatest uses I've seen of it is after the customer call, you pop open a huddle and you have a conversation to say, what did you hear? What worked? What didn't? Let's give a little bit of feedback. And if you're doing that type of work and you're combining both like digital ways of doing it as well as physical in-person ways, you're getting people a much more intentional grounding in what's the way that you succeed here than if you're just simply saying, hey, you know what the answer is? Let's just throw them together into a room and it'll work its way out for most of them. 
I'm going to put a put a plug in for Donut, which is a yeah. um, we love Donut within Slack, and it's a great way to strengthen weak ties. That's what we're hearing a lot. Like, there's not a way to strengthen weak ties in this flexible working environment. And so you get paired up with someone randomly um, across your broader team within an employee resource group, or let's just say you're in the dogs channel and you want to talk to another dog owner. And you have a 30-minute unstructured conversation about just about anything. So I had a donut conversation earlier this week with someone who had graduated from school just a few years prior. And we spoke a lot about, you know, the new place that this person was working in terms of location, uh, you know, some of their hobbies. And it was a lovely conversation. And I had a chance to, to meet someone I otherwise probably wouldn't have because we don't work directly together in a serendipitous way. So there is a way to use technology to strengthen those weak ties, in addition to using your moments together in the office to do the same. So in the book, you talk about seven steps to helping teams and organizations really nail the quote unquote how of flexible work. Because we're here to plug your book and because (laughs) we love your book. Can we hear about the seven steps? Sure. So the objective of the seven steps is to give leaders a guide for all the different areas that they need to lead with intentionality, have conversations with their team, and just go deeper on. And it's not necessarily chronological. You can pick the steps um, as you see fit for your organization, but I'll walk through the first few and then pass it over to Brian. So the first step is focused on vocalizing, defining your flexible work purpose and setting the principles by which you are modeling what work is going to look like in your organization. But in order to do so, step two is about setting behavioral guardrails. What are ways in which you want to encourage your leaders, your fellow executive team, your employees to model the behavior to meet the purpose, the principles that you defined? In addition, as I I mentioned earlier, one-size-fits-all, top-down mandates, they're not effective ways of bringing teams together. And so step three is focused on developing team norms, team level agreements, and having your leaders get feedback from from their team members to get a sense for how they want to work and what some of the behaviors that they want to see in day-to-day work. And step four is about just experimentation. We talked about experimentation earlier. Um, It's it's important that leaders realize that they're they're not going to get this perfect from the get-go. So it's critical for them to take a growth mindset, a learning mindset, and experiment with different ways in which they are working with their teams and get feedback from their organization accordingly. Nice. I'll pick it up from there and pick up the last three. So uh, connection. Connection has changed a lot. And so the the concept behind this one is how do you cultivate connection, both with in-person activities and gatherings, as well as online through digital tools? There's a Slack's phrase for this is digital first doesn't mean never in person. We want to make sure that we are taking an approach that is thinking about how do we create connection continuously online, but also how do we make sure that people are having, you know, time together in person that's meaningful, that has purpose behind it, that that drives that. Behind that comes steps six, which is reskilling your managers. We hear this time and time again, both from our own frontline managers, as well as executives across so many companies that... Frontline managers have been under-supported, under-trained in this new world. And so thinking through how do you support them to be coaches, not attendance takers? Mm-hmm. What's it mean to really manage to outcomes uh, becomes really essential in helping people actually succeed. 
And then the last one is focusing on outcomes and how do you actually do that at a variety of different levels? What's it mean to manage individuals to outcomes? What's that look like at the team level? And a question we get from executives all the time, how will we know if we're on the right track? What outcomes should we be measuring to see whether or not flexible work for us is making things better or making things worse, both for the business and for the employees? I mean, those those all sound like uh, great foundational practices. And I especially like uh, step three. Um, you thought you would. <laughs> <laughs> if, if only there were a tool to support making team agreements. Um, murmur, murmur. S- Speaking of which, you are talking to two massive agreement nerds right now, and it was pretty exciting to see a chapter focused on that. So can you say a little bit about why teams should strengthen their agreement making muscles and maybe how agreements help build the containers for this flexibility and learning and play that you're advocating for? And maybe even how you've seen that play out within teams at Slack or or some of the teams that you've studied. I think it's just, it's so essential and such a bedrock foundational element of making this work. It comes all the way back to top-down mandates about, you know, company-wide, Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays are the days everyone's going to be in the office. Don't really work. One size Mm. does not fit all, right? Different teams have have different needs. And so you've got to give them some way in which they can do it. And so norms, you all are much deeper and great experts on this, but you got to start off with the operating norms within your organization. The most basic stuff comes back to what's the meaning and purpose of coming together? How frequently do we do that? It comes back to how do we manage schedules and meetings? It comes back to what tools do we use and for what purpose? But then you also need to go deeper if you're going to build really inclusive and really engaged teams, which is what are the behavioral norms that you support within your team? How do you make decisions How do you make sure that you are not, especially as organizations grow, playing swarm ball, right? Where everybody is staying on top of everything. (laughs) Kindergarten soccer, Rodney calls that. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's those that really becomes foundational. We've done it ourselves as a team. We are big fans and have used a lot of the content and material you all have have put out there as well. And we've seen other teams both within Slack and other organizations adopt and use similar methodologies. So what we did within Slack, for example, is we came up with a sort of company-wide set of templates uh, for team-level agreements, not off of just, you know, copy-pasting stuff that we'd read someplace, but because there were four different parts of the organization that had taken a somewhat different approach. And we could use that to help paint the picture of your team and organization may even differ in terms of what it needs to lean into first. But mm-hmm. start with the basics and here's some areas you might want to dig into next and review, iterate, refine, bring it back again. Yeah, we have a starter template in, in our book in the tools and templates section. And the starter template has five categories. One, values. Two, how are you thinking about schedules and meetings across your team? Third is about accountability. Fourth is how are we building and cultivating relationships? And the last piece is about checking in. So how often do you want to refresh, update, have a conversation of what's working and what's not? And I think it's really important to codify a lot of this and write it down because from my own experience as a leader, what I found, especially prior to the pandemic, was people would say, hey, I'm going to be out of the office from 11 to 2 for a doctor's appointment. Or, hey, I'm going to do some focus work on Friday." They felt the need to check in. And, and my response always was, I trust you. You have to figure it out. Like, don't worry about it at all. And once we developed a team level agreement that said, we're leading with trust. Um, you don't need to check in in terms of what your schedule is every single day or 
you need to take Fridays off to, to focus. Let's, let's codify that as a team. We'll use that as focus Fridays. The, the moment we wrote it down and we talked about it, I stopped getting the, hey, is it okay if I questions and found right, that right. there was just more psychological safety, more trust as a team because everybody had bought into this way of working. That's so cool. I want to keep digging a little bit on the agreement making. I've been thinking a lot about agreements this week for a variety of reasons. And <laughs> one of the things that um, I I suspect is true is that the world does not yet fully understand the power of agreements and that the world thinks they know more about agreements than they do. And so <laughs> I am curious to hear y'all's take on two things. One is, what do agreements replace that we have historically relied on, but kind of suck. And two is, how do we show the world that agreements are where it's at? I think agreements replace outdated professional norms of, I need to be in the office at a certain time. I don't have any flexibility during that time. And I leave at the earliest at 5 p.m. or or 6 p.m. I want to be able to show that I'm committed and I'm rewarded for my presenteeism. Mm-hmm. I think agreements are a great way to say, hey, let's ditch those outdated norms of professionalism. Let's figure out what works best for us and let's continue to talk about it. I think it also replaces the top-down mandates that, that leaders often set of this is how I work, so this is how I expect you to work. Mm-hmm. And instead, it's it's enabling people to bring their whole selves to work. It's enabling people to do work when works best for them. And I think as a result, what we're going to see is happier, more engaged teams, but also more productive teams. Mm-hmm. It, means you're, it means you're able to focus on the work that the team is doing as opposed to all the work that goes around that, right? The, the performative yeah. stuff should drop away. What you should see more is focus on, you know, what is it we're delivering to our customers? What's the the body of work that we're working on as output as opposed to, the performative questions that Sheila was even at, uh, outlining earlier, which are great <laughs> examples. You know, is it okay if I do such and such? People should know and understand what that is and not spend their time in the process of work. What we see from our research is that um, 50% of global knowledge workers feel like they need to show their managers that they're working. And that's just Gross. so concerning yeah. when I see that because it's like <laughs> the stress that goes into, hey, I'm working, just want to let you know how hard I'm working. That shouldn't be what work is about. Yeah. Yeah. And like what's emerging for me listening to you both talk is it feels like agreements can replace a lot of permission seeking. And I'm coming up with P's now. Permission seeking, (laughs) performative ways of working, but also plans. Like I feel like we spend so much time in teams and organizations planning the what and the when. And if instead we just agreed on the how, how much less of that could we do? Like, I think it's probably a lot. Yeah. Could I add one more piece? Yes, you should. Let's let's keep alliterating. (laughs) Um, Proximity bias is another one. Uh, I think one thing I'm, I'm concerned about with flexible work, and it's a top concern for executives, is favoritism towards employees who are located nearby or in the office. Hell yeah. And what we're seeing from our research is that those who want to come back into the office five days a week tend to be men, tend to be white employees, um, tend to be executives. Whereas those who want more flexibility tend to be uh, employees of color, working parents and caregivers, as well as women. And we've seen a lot of gains over the last two years, despite the challenges, around sense of belonging as well as relationships with coworkers, especially among employees of color. And proximity bias, 
basically runs the risk of erasing those gains. And because so much of performance is based on this person was the first in, the last to leave, or I know this person can hustle and cares about their job because they're in the office five days a week. What we run the risk of is that when it comes to promotion time, it's a conversation of this person should get promoted because I see them more often versus this person who works more flexibly should get promoted because they're producing results. And so I think okay. that team level agreements that, that codify how we're working together, how we're measuring success, they're critical for also reducing proximity bias so that we see people who are making impact in the organization get promoted versus those who are focused on the performative aspect um, getting recognized. Right. So a bit of an equalizer. I am curious, there's a little there's a little turn of phrase in, in the book as you're talking about the pivots that are required as we move from this very activity-based, performative, all the P's that you all just created, which I'm definitely <laughs> going to turn into a bumper sticker, to something that's more outcomes-based. I believe it was the doom loop to the boom loop. Can you can you walk us through each of those loops and the new skills that are needed for these changes to actually stick and last and not get thrown out as soon as everything opens back up again? So Sheila, I got a proposal. I'll do the doom loop and you do the boom loop. Perfect. Okay. All right. Boom. Let's do it. <laughs> So the starting point is, you know, doom loop is you start off with monitoring, right? The monitoring is the way in which you tell whether or not people are working. It's the lazy input driven mechanism of, you know, if people are sitting at their desks, then I know that they are working. Ha ha. They may or may not be. Uh, it results in people putting in place meaningless metrics. I'll give you another example. I've got a college age kid. He had a summer internship. Summer in internship consisted of uh, one aspect of it was you need to spend 10 hours a week uh, doing the following thing with the following tool to generate you know output. Now, output should be three things. He figured out that he could get it done, the three things that he was supposed to get done every week in about, an, about three hours. <laughs> he got told by the management, make sure you keep the tool open for 10 hours because uh. that way you're you know, ensuring that we're not messing up the metrics. And at that point, what you've done is you've really created this concept of, of avoidance, which is if that's the metric and I can manage to the metric and I can perform to the metric, but it's not the output you're looking for. So you know, you're not asking me to actually engage my brain, at which point you lose trust in the organization. And eventually people sit there and start looking for other jobs because you're putting in place monitoring metrics, whether it's monitoring someone's laptop, how many hours they're putting in, how many, how often the tool is open, as opposed to looking at their output. And you're either telling them to turn off their brain, which is pretty horrifying, mm -hmm. or you know they're just going to perform to that metric and not really do anything more than what's required. <laughs> Once so, again, Goodhart's Law makes its appearance on our show. There you <laughs> are. Any, any measure that becomes a target ceases to become a good measure. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so Brian talked about the, the doom loop and what we propose instead is something called the boom loop. And the boom loop is essentially a way for teams to come together around shared goals, aligning on the shared goals and how they're going to get there, celebrating the wins as they, as they come, measuring performance based on the outcomes rather than the, the activity, and ultimately setting new higher goals once you've achieved that. And I think the boom loop is really an interesting model because it shows a new way of working that also focuses on outcomes rather than measuring activity. Mm -hmm. It also requires us to, to reskill our managers. And what we've seen from our research is that middle managers are struggling across really all elements of the experience. And what we need to train them to do is embrace the boom loop and figure out how to lead with trust 
and measure against outcomes because that's what we see employees want today. I had dinner. I just got back from New York and I had dinner with a friend while I was in the city whose husband works for a large financial services company. And he's, you know, he's in his mid forties and he has children and owns a home and has a lot of responsibilities and makes <laughs> healthy seven figures a year. And, um, got called into his boss's office because they're reading the data off of their security cards and he hadn't swiped in enough days according to the new in-person or hybrid policy and got a talking to and was like, dude, are you serious? Wild. Right now? But to your point, I mean, if that's if that's what you're measuring, then you know, you can bet he's gonna have an intern swiping that card in. Monday through Friday. It is interesting. We've, we've, we've had so many of these chief people officers and CEOs in some of these conversations. And one of them said to us, you know, when I was younger, I was, I was one of the ones who was there at eight until eight, but it didn't mean that I was working much more than 50% of that time. And another one said that they get really frustrated because every time that their executive team asks, how do we know people are being productive if they're working for home from home? They just turn it around and say, how do you know they're being productive when they're in the office? Exactly. Nice. Exactly. Like As a person who famously slept under my desk a lot during my first job, <laughs> at which I was a top performer, by the way. Um, well, you know, it's like, how do they know if they give you a, an office with a door? I took a lot more naps there than I do now. So one thing we really wanted to talk about, obviously, we love hearing about tales from inside of organizations. And we know that your book took a lot of inspiration from Slack's own questions and experiments and your own transformation, really creating a digital first organization. So as Slack folks, did either of you struggle with any of the pivots that you then wrote about in the book? Like, were there any challenges to the status quo that gave either of you pause? I, from, from my perspective, I, I realized that work needed to change um, prior to the pandemic. I, I was definitely feeling the the stress of being a mother to two young kids. I felt the the stress of code switching and being in the office five days a week from from certain hours. And so I think one area that that has been a shift for us that's been a very positive shift is, is the reliance on meetings. Um, mm-hmm. Meetings have traditionally been a way to show that you're important. You're booked back to back. You're you're needed in all these conversations. And moving to a, a digital first approach also just showed how a lot of these meetings were, were pointless. And so one thing that we have introduced at Slack, as well as within our own team at Future Forum, is really questioning the need for a meeting. Is, is the topic focused on debating, deciding, discussing, or developing your employee? Then yes, keep the meeting. Otherwise, if it's a status check or just around the horn, bring it into Slack. And reducing the needs for meetings has also then enabled time flexibility. And ultimately, it's reduced burnout and fatigue. People feel like they can can have a bit more freedom throughout the day. In addition, I think over the last two years, we've gotten more reliant on video and showing that you're present because you're, you're on the video. And Brian mentioned Slack huddles earlier, like Slack huddles, turning video off, and even just the basic phone call to do your one-on-ones has been a great way to just mix up the day and also change how you're communicating with your team using different formats. Uh, Rodney, Sheila is a wonderful human being and a great leader, and I am a big bag of 30 years worth of professional problems. (laughs) Yeah, let's hear it. Let's hear that baggage, um, Brian. The, the uh, you know, for me, even this concept of scheduled send, which you know, you, you felt like I was pushing on you, <laughs> y'all. This is something that I have been learning myself, thanks to Sheila and other people giving me the direct feedback and helping mm. me understand the habits and patterns. Because 
I was, you know, I was a professional consultant at the start of my career. I had this, this phrase burned into my psyche, seldom wrong, never in doubt. And <laughs> you know, it's, it's just <sighs> a horrifying thing if you want to have, I mean, talk about your fixed mindset. I learned through the School of Hard Knocks, basically by doing startups and getting my, my butt kicked several times, that that really wasn't working, but it's still an ongoing process of learning. And I think the past two years, I have learned more, more quickly than I ever have over the past you know 20 whatever odd years before that, partly because it's been this great opportunity to sort of shift my own conventional wisdom. You know, I started out in my career with all the assumptions about office-based everything, right? But it's not just that. I've benefited from having partners like Sheila and Helen who are willing to tell me stuff I need to hear that I might not like. And that in itself is a, is a big learning. It's one of the things we talk about in the book, which is executives need to be able to say, I don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of senior executives, that's hard. You, you got to be able to keep two things in your head at once. You've got to be able to say, as a senior leader, I can be motivational and inspirational and point towards long-term vision. And I can say, I don't know how we're going to get there. I know that we are going to get there. I believe in all of you. I need your help getting there. I need your help solving problems. And that is essential. And it's probably the biggest challenge I continue to still have myself as a leader. That seems like a pretty nice place to draw things to a close. So Sheila and Brian, where can our listeners find out more about you and your book and your work? They can learn more about the book at howthefutureworks.org. And they can learn more about our work, our research, our case studies at futureforum.com. If you want to learn more directly from us, feel free to shoot us a note over LinkedIn or Twitter, and we're happy to respond. Awesome. Sheila and Brian, this has been such a delight for us. Thanks so much for coming mm-hmm. on the show. Thanks for having us. It's been great from uh, from my perspective, too. Y'all, if you like what you're hearing, please do leave us a review. I've been reading them to my mom so that she understands what I do for a living. And so, you know, you can help me with that. We really, really appreciate it. <laughs> a quick tip of the hat, as always, to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at the And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.